Hello and welcome from a very sunny and warm Samarkand where we're holding our 2023 EBRD annual meeting and business forum. Welcome to all of you here in person in this room and those of course joining us online. My name is Jonathan Charles, I'm a former Managing Director of Communications at the EBRD and today we are looking ahead to what may be in store economically. We are forecasting some economic growth amidst several shocks. These are hard times for the economies in the EBRD regions and many advanced economies as well. Winter is behind us of course as we see in the sunshine here today but it offers little respite for our regions. And indeed, uh, in fact, recently the IMF has downgraded its forecast for many of our economies, and so are we. Will summer offer us some hope, some green shoots of recovery, or will we just be getting by for quite a while yet? Here to help us launch our latest regional economic prospects are our economic heavyweights, Beata Javorczyk, who is the EBRD Chief Economist and Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford, and Heike Harmgaard is the Managing Director for the Southern and Eastern Mediterranean region here at the EBRD. Also joining us is Sergei Guriev, a professor uh, from Sciences Po and Provost, former EBRD Chief Economist. We hope he'll be with us very, very shortly. But before we begin, a reminder that uh, translation in English and Russian is available on your headphones and also on our Interaxio app if you're watching online. Uh, the details you should be able to see uh, right now if you're here in the room or online. We'll also be taking your questions towards the end of our panel. You can submit yours by going to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com, and using the code 12796662. Choose the Regional Economic Prospect session, post your question there. If you're here, there's a QR code on the back of your seat to help you, or should be. Just point your phone and ask your question. And we'll also take some questions the old-fashioned way, by the way. If you want to put up your hand, uh, we'll try and come to some questions if you're physically here in the audience. Uh, for those of you who are watching us on LinkedIn or YouTube, please feel free to uh, post your questions in the comments, and we'll pick them up. Now, let's start with an overview of economic growth across the EBRD regions. Are we seeing a further slowdown? What is the main worry around inflation? All these issues. Beata, over to you. What is happening in the EBRD regions should be viewed against the backdrop of developments in the world economy. And the midterm projections for the world economy are the worst they have been in 30 years. Now, the robust post-COVID recovery in the EBRD regions was interrupted by the war. And even though the growth held up in the first half of last year, the economy started slowing down in the second half. And this year, growth is going to be subdued. We expect some pickup next year. Now, Central Asia stands out. It experienced a shallower recession during the pandemic, but also a less robust recovery. But before we go region by region, let me start with um, Central Europe. For Central Europe and the Baltics, it's going to be a very challenging year. In that region, we are worried about elevated energy prices, 
they, are, they came down from their peaks, but they are still six times as high as in the US. Um, inflation, as Jonathan mentioned, is eroding the purchasing power of wages. And of course, there are spillovers from slowdown in Western Europe. Now, similar comments apply to Western Balkans and Southern and Eastern Europe, though there, Bulgaria is enjoying increased confidence associated with its expected accession to the euro, and Romania is engaging in a lot of public investment supported by the EU fund. Okay, so it's uh, quite an interesting picture, and we'll, we'll dig deeper in some of the other regions now. I'm <coughs> glad to say we're also joined by uh, Sergei Guriev online from Paris, former EBRD chief economist. Uh, what about the wider region uh, around Ukraine, Russia, Central Asia? How do you see that, Sergei? Very unusual year, last year and this year, and of course that will have uh, impact on the years to come. It is, uh, uh, it is uh, not a good year to be an economic forecaster because <laughs> there's so many dislocations. And when you actually look at the forecasts uh, we have made uh, a year ago on what we look at now, even if you just compare IBRD's own forecast made a year ago for 2022-2023 and look at uh, what's happened actually in 2022 and how EBRD has revised its uh, forecast for 2023, you see many changes. And the broad picture depends on the country you look at. So uh, interestingly, uh, EBRD has been right on target predicting minus 30% decline in, of GDP in Ukraine. Uh, on Russia, EBRD, like everybody, was uh, too pessimistic in terms of GDP or too optimistic in terms of impact of the sanctions. Um, Russia's, Russian GDP has done better, we'll talk about that today. Uh, other countries have uh, seen very different impacts. If you think about a country like uh, Armenia, uh, it had double-digit growth because of the unprecedented exodus of uh, qualified uh, uh, upper-middle-class Russians. Some countries have benefited through, uh, from uh, uh, trade diversion, so the picture is very, very heterogeneous. There are other countries where IBRD thought the impact would be muted, but that suffered a lot, for example, Moldova. So there is no one single takeaway from what's happened in terms of economic growth and in terms of forecasts of economic growth. And more importantly, unfortunately, I should say that it's very hard to see what's going to happen in the, in the wider region overall because we don't know how the war is going to play out we don't know uh, which sanctions uh, uh, will have which impact we don't know whether secondary sanctions will force neighbors of russia to uh, to change their behavior so this is really an uncharted territory we are in and unfortunately what we've learned from the previous year is it's very hard to make forecasts especially about the future if I could just uh, ask you one question, Sergey, just following up on what you said and picking up on one of the points you made about why you think Russian growth in particular was stronger uh, than you expected, because obviously that does have a ripple effect as well, for example, here in Central Asia. That's, uh, that's exactly true. It's, uh, it's been unexpected. If you go back one year, especially March and April, that's where the forecast of IMF and IBRD are made and then published in April and May, uh, uh, everybody was on the page of minus 8%, minus 10% for 2022. The outcome is minus 2%, which is much, much better. 
And so there are several factors. I will just uh, name a few. One is real sanctions kicked in only in December. For the whole year of 2022, Russia was enjoying high oil prices and continued to export uh, oil and gas to Europe. The oil sanctions only started in Europe in, the, in December 2022 against Russian oil in February 2023 in, uh, against Russian oil products. The other, uh, the other story is, of course, a year ago we were really, really in, uh, in the unknown because uh, uh, sanctions were unprecedented, sanctions against the Russian uh, sovereign fund, the central bank, uh, were largest in history. And so there was a panic which triggered this uh, crisis thinking that Russia is probably going to go down the drain like the other sanctioned countries before Russia. But the difference, of course, is that Russian policymakers are much more competent in technical terms than, say, policymakers in countries like Iran, Venezuela, or for that matter, monetary policymakers in Turkey. I, I guess we are going to talk about Turkey as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, when people talk about GDP dynamics, we should remember that during the war, GDP dynamics is a misleading metric. When you produce uh, artillery shells or tanks, you add to GDP directly. One billion worth of uh, weapons is one billion worth of addition to GDP. But of course, the fact that you increase uh, production of uh, military equipment doesn't mean that you increase quality of life. And if you look at quality of life, then the results were quite catastrophic. If you look at, uh, for example, uh, consumption of Russian households, the retail trade turnover and comparable prices, it did go down by 8 or 10 percent in 2022. So it's just uh, using the right metrics is also important. All right, Sergey, thank you very much for the moment. I also note, by the way, that Sergey said it's a tough year to be an economic forecaster. I always think it's a tough year to be an economic <laughs> forecaster. I prefer looking back. It's always a lot easier. Uh, let's go to another region, southern and eastern Mediterranean. Heike, your region, what are you seeing there? I think it's also an interesting showcase of that this is really a globally interconnected world and the, the shocks are really global. So what you see, I mean, first after the COVID, there was actually a good recovery that we saw across the southern and eastern Mediterranean region. We saw countries picking up quicker than maybe we had expected. But then um, we saw the indirect effect of the war on Ukraine more directly actually in the southern and eastern Mediterranean region because vulnerability to energy and food prices were just so much more pronounced. So Egypt is one of the global biggest importers of grain from Russia and Ukraine. Tunisia is a small country, so the global volumes are not, uh, not shaking the grain price, but they are also depending on grain from that region. So we saw a huge impact on higher grain prices. We saw a huge impact on energy prices. Most of these countries are energy importers. So just the global effect on prices in the energy sector have really shown and subdued growth for that region. And if you look at the comparison, it still looks good. You think, you know, in comparison to global growth, uh, this looks not too shabby. Um, and with the exception of Lebanon, where we have a true recession, based also on a lot of domestic mm. issues. Um, but you have to remember, this is the, re the youngest region maybe in the EBRD family. This is a region with high population growth. Egypt alone adds 2 million new people to the labor market every year. So the growth numbers we're seeing for, for this region are too low to actually generate jobs for the young and for this very young population in these countries, jobs in the private sector. So there is really a laggard effect from uh, the impact of the initial high prices of food 
and energy, and the decline in food prices have not fed through to this region. So inflation, which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, is really rising in this part of the world um, and, and basic <coughs> commodities as well. Yeah, I think that uh, we'll come to the pain that is not going away uh, very shortly because that's definitely one of the stories, isn't it, of the, of the year ahead. And, and let's talk about inflation. You know, it, it's amazing, I guess, how enduring it's been. Uh, it's amazing the spike in some countries. Beata? So we are past the peak of inflation, hopefully. We saw the prices of energy going down. So of course, we are not out of the woods yet because the markets expect uptick in the mm. prices of natural mm. gas um, later this year. So the inflation has gone down. Now, if you look at the yellow line on this chart, this is what the IMF projects the disinflation path for the EBRD regions is going to look like. If you compare it to the previous episodes of disinflation, also depicted on this slide, you see that the, this forecast is very optimistic. It is, ex it is suggesting a very fast disinflation. And actually, you know, that may not become a reality because a lot of the downtick in inflation was driven by food and energy, but um, prices of other goods have come down, but prices of services are still going mm. up. Actually, yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? You know, when we look at core inflation, you know, that's telling us some quite interesting things about this question of how quickly overall inflation may decline. Uh, indeed, and core inflation has been stubborn, has been actually very stubborn, going down very little. Core inflation meaning inflation stripped of uh, energy and, and food prices. Now, of course, this is not something that is limited to our regions. It is a global phenomenon. What makes this region different is the memory of hyperinflation, particularly hyperinflation in the early transition phases. So people may be quicker to raise their inflationary expectations. These expectations may be more entrenched. And of course, we have young, younger central banks which are less experienced in communicating their intentions uh, to the public. We'll have a look at the regions in a minute, but when you look at uh, what we have been looking at in terms of that IMF expectation, so as you say, it's likely to be not quite as quick as that. What do you think? Where will we be in 12 months' time then? Where would, where do, where do you see our end point uh, in, in 12 months' time in terms of uh, what people can expect? Well, the <coughs> expectations of the IMF are that we will be at the pre-COVID mm. level of inflation um, in by 2025, mm. right? But that's optimistic. And also in some regions, um, you know, Central Asia, for instance, Caucasus, we'll see wages, real wages still increasing. Mm. So even though inflation in Caucasus is low, you may still have some of this wage price uh, spiral. So I think... Um, I am not particularly optimistic here. I think inflation may mm. stay with us longer than what we can hope for. And of course, a lot will depend on what central banks will do, whether they will find themselves under political pressure, particularly in countries that are facing elections, or whether they will continue um, at least not lowering interest rates. So that stickiness of inflation is with us for a while, probably. Let, let's have a look at uh, the regions. Sergey Guriev, uh, if I can turn to you again. 
Where do you see regional inflation and the prospects for that uh, in the Caucasus and Central Asia? Well, in, in uh, Caucasus and Central Asia, you have an additional component, which is, as I mentioned, uh, migration from Russia. Uh, there are Russians uh, with skills and money who run away from Putin's regime. They buy real estate in those countries, they buy goods and services, and we see, we see the upward uh, pressure in countries where they arrive. And uh, it's good for economic growth, as I mentioned, but it's also an upward pressure on, on the prices. And this is a factor which uh, is uh, unexpected. Uh, nobody thought that uh, such a great flow inflow would take place. And this is something that uh, you, Jonathan, uh, and uh, the colleagues of EBRD living in London have probably seen before when uh, rich uh, foreigners arrived in London and real estate prices uh, hiked, uh, uh, pricing out the young Londoners out of, uh, out of real estate market. So we already see uh, pushback from authorities regarding this. But this is pretty much the, the fact we, we can observe. But overall, I, I, I share I share Biada's uh, concerns that inflation is sticky, and uh, this is not just the war, this is not just the grain and oil prices which com have contributed. Inflation started well before the war, uh, driven by demand factors globally, like, uh, like uh, US uh, fiscal stimulus, which probably was excessive, like supply chain disruptions due to COVID and China's uh, one uh, zero COVID policy, but also mistakes in monetary policy in countries like Turkey. Uh, uh, all of that is, of course, very important. On the other hand, if you compare central bankers today to 1990s, they're young, they don't remember 1990s or mm -hmm. 1980s, but they're also, they also have tools. Yes. Uh, I think compared to 1990s, central bankers are much more competent around the regions. And uh, when I mentioned monetary policy in Turkey, I would also say that central bankers there know what to do, it's just the political authorities uh, deny them independence to do that. Yes, we'll come to that in just a second. Just, just very quickly then, Sergey, if I read between the lines of what you're saying, you also think the IMF forecast could be a little bit optimistic? That's a great question, yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, there are many things which are, first, unknown now, and second, and second, a lot of data are now not transparent, and they shift too quickly. And yes, I, I rather agree with Riata that maybe the um, forecast that inflation is coming down very soon is too optimistic. Okay, thank you, Sergey, and thank you for bringing up the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. We're <laughs> clearly in that uh, in that world. Uh, Heike, let's turn to you. Egypt, Turkey, two of the big countries, you know, in uh, close in your region and close to your region. Uh, some pretty worrying trends there. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's also interesting. I don't think we can say of the IMF as sort of an optimistic bunch, but I'm also <laughs> would want to, <laughs> in general, but I would generally agree here that... Sorry, by the way, to any IMF people <laughs> watching us. We love you, really. <laughs> but uh, I would also agree that uh, on some of the... Because uh, on some of the inflation numbers in particular, uh, the forecast of disinflation might be too um, optimistic in the sense that there are a lot of underlying factors um, that um, are sort of not uh, feeding into the macro data with some delays. So, for example, Egypt, we see a lot of the private sector's wage increases have happened with some delay uh, in, in sort of uh, in, in different packages that they give their wages in sort of additional um, so 
wage hikes that are unexpected. So I think there's a lot of uh, uh, uncertainties around the wage price dynamic that Beata was saying that is also true for Egypt. Then there was a lot of pressure. I mean, there was, we're just coming out of the month of Ramadan. For those of you who have not experienced it, it's actually a lot also about family and food. Mm. So food prices are really critical to keep them at an affordable level during that month. So governments were under a lot of pressure to keep bread prices low, to keep food prices low. So we also will see some delay of some of these inflationary pressures. And then you see a very mix of... Uh, um, foreign currency regimes in the region. So some are packed to the dollar, so they have seen um, a really uh, stringent increase in inf interest rates, and others have more flexibility where interest rates haven't been passed through yet, but I think will need to pass through to control inflation further. So I think there are a number of factors in Egypt also that um, I would say make at least the short term very interesting mm. and maybe in the medium term I do see still of the positive fundamentals coming through but the short term inflation um, currency reserves will remain a challenge also for the central bank to manage and I want to come back also mm. to a point that the Atta mentioned communication about monetary policy is not the same, at least sort of if I talk about the southern and eastern Mediterranean region, than what we are used to maybe from European uh, uh, central banks. So there is always an opaqueness around the communication, yeah. which makes it more difficult to businesses also to anchor uh, inflation expectations. So I think a few interesting months with lots of volatility around the exchange rate um, and uh, also inflation expectations to come, in particular in big economies like Egypt. Well, and of course, if we look at Turkey now after the first round of the elections, we don't know whether normal monetary policy mm. is going to resume Absolutely. or whether we're going to have a continuation of the unusual monetary policy, if I can put it that way, that has been pursued by, by the government there. So that must make inflation forecasting almost impossible, actually, for the next few months at the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. And sure. I think we haven't really spoken the impact of inflation forecasts also for the business community and what they, what they perceive as inflationary pressure and foreign exchange pressure in making their investment decisions. So we also see some delayed investments on the back of, of the uncertainty created around foreign currency and inflationary um, um, predictions. And so we do see also um, a suppression of investment decision and hence which will feed through a uh, lack growth. Okay. Um, let, let's turn now, Beata, to the question of recessions. You know, it, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, if you think about what we lived through in the past two or three years in terms of economic black swan events, you know, which have come along quite quickly. We've had the COVID recession, we've had the impact now, or the economic impact of uh, the war, uh, and, and it ripples across all economies. So how do you see that? Well, so economies in our regions have experienced two technical recessions in close mm. succession, the pandemic-induced recession and the current slowdown. Now, of course, I have to come back to the issue of how challenging it is to make forecasts mm. in turbulent times. And that's for two reasons. First, we actually don't have a very good picture of what happened in the past, simply because 
the initial estimates of GDP tend to be revised later, and they tend to be revised more um, during times when there is a lot of uncertainty. And second, it's incredibly difficult uh, to make assumptions about the future. I mean, take the war. It's, it's very hard to know how things will develop. In one of our previous reports, we looked at how good uh, Eurostat forecasts were <laughs> during the global financial crisis. And we, in particular, we looked at the last quarter of, 20, of 2008, so basically the first quarter of the crisis. And what you saw was that the forecast, as well as the initial GDP estimates, were wildly off. And you know, there wasn't a positive bias or a negative bias in one or the other. There wasn't the, they were wrong uh, even in different directions for, for, diff for the same country. So you need to take this graph with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Uh, I think often with all economic forecasts, you need to take uh, with a pinch of salt. They are forecasts. I think people often forget that they are forecasts and not actuality. Uh, let's uh, dig into this a little bit more. Sergey Guriev, if I could turn to you. What do you see as the threats to growth in the near future, in particular in Central Asia and the Caucasus? Well, um, uh, EBRD is not much more optimistic about Central Asia and and the focus is then just a year ago. And part of that is uh, that we saw the resilience of those economies in 2022, and also the way they actually benefited from trade diversion in 2022, when Russia moved its trade through directly trading with Europe, which was uh, Russia's biggest trade partner, through uh, to trading with Europe through third countries, including Central Asia, Caucasus, and Turkey. And the BRD in its own work has shown how important those uh, shifts were. And so that was a great contributor to economic growth of those countries. Now, Europe, the great Western coalition, pro-Ukrainian coalition, is now trying to shut down those loopholes which help Russia to circumvent sanctions. And so that is a main threat to growth in countries which have benefited from, from uh, this trade diversion. And so uh, Europe is quite serious about this. Last year, as you know, they've created a special uh, envoy for sanctions. Uh, now this office is led by David O'Sullivan. The 11th package of sanctions will target some of those, uh, uh, some of those uh, loopholes. There are secondary sanctions that Europe uh, has announced uh, already, and they've created this tool to punish countries that help Russia to circumvent sanctions. So this is a very, very important threat to economic growth to Russia's neighbors, in particular Turkey, Caucasus, and uh, Central Asia. And, so, it, and in terms of, sorry, in terms of Russia world. itself, Sergei, if I can interrupt you then, presumably this is the year as well where you see the possibility of sanctions really starting to have some impact on Russia. That's correct. Uh, as I mentioned, the real sanctions, uh, sanctions against Russian stock of petrodollars were introduced on the day three of the war. But the flow of petrodollars continued last year, and it is this year when Russia is facing major problems with earning uh, oil revenues. And the gas uh, sales to Europe have pretty much stopped. Uh, the the uh, European buyers of uh, Russian gas have pretty much stopped buying Russian gas for whatever reason, including the uh, mysterious explosions in Nord Stream 1 and 2. Uh, overall, Overall, what we see is, uh, is a major impact on Russian budget. Um, the Russian, Russian government authorities are now facing the need to 
introduce austerity, and that's uh, that's not going to be easy neither for Russian government nor for the Russian economy. Russian uh, oil and gas revenues in the first quarter of 2023 are about uh, half of what they were in the first quarter of 2022. It's a huge, huge difference. And so Russia will have to do something with financing the deficit. Now, IMF is always optimistic, as we mentioned already, uh, but the optimism IMF is based on the idea that Russian banks are actually sitting on a pile of liquidity. But this is a known unknown, if you like, Jonathan. We are not young, so we remember yes. American policymakers use this uh, concept. Uh, so Donald Trump's it was, who said uh, that we need to distinguish known unknowns from unknown unknowns. And, uh, and basically, this is a known unknown. Russian banks don't publish data, and so you have to make assumptions how healthy they are and whether they will be able to lend to Russian government to help to overcome this uh, major fiscal challenge. And so that is something we don't know. And so Russian uh, Russian uh, economy may do less well than IMF thinks. And here I'm again uh, closer to uh, EBRD's forecast, which is more negative than IMF. Thank you, Sergey. I think the most surprising thing we've heard today is that the sun always shines at IMF headquarters in Washington, which uh, <laughs> is clearly uh, what we're feeling. Let, let, what I think one of the most interesting things of the past year, and not just in EBRD economies, but in many economies, was how well, considering the pressures that were bearing down on economies, that they held up, because people still had a bit of COVID saving left in many economies. But I don't know, Beata, how you see that. You know, what does that tell us now about the state of personal finance? Because you get the feeling that's sort of dripping away. Indeed, uh, things are not looking as good as they looked before. You know, if you turn on TV in London or in Berlin, you hear on the news discussions about cost of living crisis. But actually, it's the emerging countries that are feeling the cost of living crisis much more. And I think that's very much underappreciated in advanced economies. I think it's fair to say that households are just getting by. You know, in Eastern Europe, Caucasus or uh, Southern Eastern Mediterranean, 80% of households are just making ends meet or they have to dip into savings to survive. Moreover, um, this is true in Central Asia for about half of the households. Also, if you ask people, and this, these are the data that come from our latest household surveys, we surveyed so far 14 countries, late last year, early this year, more than 1,000 households in each country. Um, what you also see is that there is great vulnerability. Um, majority of households, if they lost their main source of income, they would be able to cover their basic expenses for no more than a month. And this contrasts very sharply with the resilience of, for instance, German households. So, you know, this, this succession of two crises um, has left households very vulnerable to, to shocks. It's quite a bleak picture in some ways, isn't it? And shows a, a lack of resilience, bearing in mind the whole theme of our uh, meeting here these few days is about resilience. So, so where do you see any signs of hope, Beata? You know, where's the economic cavalry riding in from, if from anywhere? Well, so one sign of hope is the process of reshaping of global value chains. Uh, I think the war 
triggered a realization that geopolitical shocks are not going away and firms which so far have been reluctant um, to diversify their supplier base are doing that. Right? And we saw this in surveys of German firms where two-thirds of German manufacturing firms have added new suppliers, half of them are intending to do so uh, in the next 12 months, and this is an opportunity for the broadly defined European neighborhood. Right? So German firms will not be dropping Chinese suppliers, but they want the model China plus one. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, who will become the plus one? And I think you know, there are many countries within our regions that could become that plus one. That's an interesting thought. And Heike, so is there a, is there a plus one opportunity in your region? Absolutely. So uh, here comes maybe my eternal optimism. But um, no, I do, we do see really with, um, in particular, um, labor costs low in a, and um, with uh, de declining exchange rate in big <laughs> markets like Egypt, that Egypt has become increasingly competitive also as a manufacturing hub. And I think maybe here I want to start talking a little bit about the energy transition that we see globally, which I also see could be an opportunity and could actually be also fast-tracked now. I think the, um, the diversion away from Russian gas has also led, in particular countries where the sun always shines and the wind blows quite hard, <laughs> to invest in renewable energy. And I think there, this is actually shown that not only will that help to green the energy, energy systems in these countries, but also we see more and more big um, connectivity projects. We see connectivity projects in um, sea cables, Elmet from Tunisia to um, Italy, from Egypt to Greece. So there will be more green energy being produced in the north of Africa, for example, and sold to Europe. So this in itself, is a big opportunity for these markets. But the biggest price on this is how much of the value chain can you actually keep in these markets? So how much of you know, the wind blades can be produced in uh, Morocco or Egypt? And how much of parts of these constructions can be produced in these markets? And there I have to say, maybe at least in these, uh, for example, wind blade uh, value chain, uh, Egypt is really positioning themselves. They want to be the plus one. They want to be the, the company that produces wind blades because they will also have uh, huge wind parks where these wind blades don't have to travel uh, miles and miles. So I think around the green energy transition, that's the biggest opportunity but also other manufacturing areas around transportation will become more competitive with a bit of uh, more diversification of global value chain. I was just telling um, Beata this morning, we see even in um, a small scale industry such as Lightning that is helping um, uh, electrification um, in, in a number of areas that the, dis the supply disruptions from China has, have even told some Egyptian and Tunisian manufacturers to diversify, to produce more components locally to um, benefit both from the, uh, from the favorable economic condition, but also be more diversified against the global shocks. So I think we do see a lot of opportunities around relocating some of the industrial base to countries with now lower labor force costs, but actually good connectivity through the Mediterranean and, for example, the Red Sea in the case of Egypt. That's a very interesting point, Heike, and, and maybe, Sergey, I could uh, just follow on with a question to you, because 
if you think about Central Asia, where there are big plans for renewable energy, you know, here in Uzbekistan, I think the plan is for 25% of all energy to be renewable by the end of this decade. I think uh, renewables go from something like 2 megawatts to 8 megawatts, a big, big increase. What does that mean, do you think, for economic growth opportunities, Sergei? Well, this is uh, the most important growth opportunity for the future. The world is now accelerating the green economic transition. If anything, this work has demonstrated is the danger of relying on fossil fuels uh, exported from uh, non-democratic countries. And in that sense, uh, in that sense, uh, this is the opportunity, and this will this will be in demand by all partners around the world. And as Heike mentioned, this is definitely true for all European neighborhood, but it's also true for countries in in uh, Central Asia. So this is the right uh, way to go. And uh, uh, we are behind on uh, Paris Agreement's uh, objectives. And so, and so whoever can contribute to global uh, green economic transition should and should benefit from that. All right. Uh, by the way, if you're in the audience here or indeed online, your chance to answer the question in just a minute. So think about your questions. Um, maybe just a, a final round, actually, with the, the three of our panelists. We've talked about the massive uncertainty, the difficulty of really looking ahead over the next 12 months. Do you have best case and worst case scenarios in your mind of, of how bad or indeed how good it could get? I mean, Beata, what, what do you think? So I am worried about um, U.S. discussions about raising the debt ceiling, mm -hmm. right? So our regions ha had been able to borrow in international markets very cheaply pretty much until the time the war started. And once the war started, the cost of financing went up both in absolute terms as well as relative to the cost of financing faced by Germany or the US. Now, if the US lawmakers do not reach um, a deal on the raising the debt ceiling, or if this deal comes so late so that the US debt is downgraded, mm. right? And in 2011, Standard & Poor's downgraded uh, the well, US yeah. debt, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that <laughs> it never came up. That is going to send jitters through the global economy, and that's going to raise the cost of financing in absolute terms, and most likely, it's going to induce investors to demand greater compensation for macroeconomic risks. That's uh, really interesting, isn't it? Because I think increasingly we see we are often a hostage globally on the economy to something happening in one country, far more than perhaps we have been for a very long time. I don't know, Heike, how do you see it? No, absolutely. So for me also, uh, in line with what uh, the scenario Beata described, I think the ever-increasing flight to safety in uncertain terms, this is bad news for emerging markets because this will re-evaluate their macro risk but also their investment risk. So my downside scenario is also triggered not by something that's happening in the emerging markets but actually what's happening outside of them mm. which will make their resilience to another shock even more challenging and their ability to attract foreign investments that they need to grow even more difficult. And so my worry is indeed that this flight to safety uh, will lead to less interest by investors into emerging markets. And so the opportunities that we just described will be not picked up with the same amount of rigor and, um, and enthusiasm. And so we will see another shock wave coming um, 
to them, which their policy instruments also don't have real, you know, uh, bite to, to, uh, to tackle. Sergei Guriev, I could see you nodding your head throughout some of that. <laughs> yes, I fully agree with what Beata and Heike have said. And uh, for me, it's very hard to be optimistic about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and the neighborhood. But uh, things may be even much worse, much, much worse if we have, a, uh, if we have a geopolitical problems uh, between China and the U.S. And I think the optimistic scenario is some kind of understanding that can emerge between China and the U.S. that will be clearly, uh, clearly defining where uh, these countries cooperate and where they are rivals. And when we talk about French shoring, fragmentation, and so on, I think a lot of jitters that uh, Heike and Beata were talking about are coming from the uncertainty that we don't know uh, what uh, the U.S. is going to do if China does this and what China is going to do if U.S. does that. And I think uh, the optimistic scenario is uh, appeasement or at least some clarity on how the new Cold War is going to take place because indeed for our region, uh, Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Semen, Central Asia, Caucasus, these are the regions which are caught up in this Cold War. And uh, uh, once US and China agree to disagree on certain things and agree to cooperate on other things, the world will be much clearer and it will be much safer uh, both in geopolitical and economic terms. So that's my optimistic scenario, that the Cold War between US and China, which is going to happen, will be well managed. Mm. Okay, Beata, I think you want to just, come back. Just to follow up on what Sergey said, um, in our latest transition report, we asked the what if question. What if the world were to break into two trading blocks and the trading cost between them went up by 20%? And the answer was, everybody pretty much would lose. The countries among our regions of operation that would lose the most were Kazakhstan, Morocco, and Bulgaria. And that's because they have trading links uh, to two regions. And you know, there are emerging markets that think, well, should there be this fragmentation process, they are going to benefit because uh, they will capture some market away from China. But I think that is a false narrative um, because in such a world, the global trading rules would become ineffective and there would be nothing to constrain countries from increasing tariffs, from constraining their exports, from uh, engaging in a subsidy race. Yeah, it would be incredibly disruptive, wouldn't it? I mean, that's, uh, Can I quickly follow yeah. up on this, John? Yes, I of think, course. Yes, the okay. optimistic scenario is, sorry, sorry, the optimistic scenario is that this fragmentation is limited to a very narrow set of goods and services which are strategic and uh, protectionist forces don't abuses this definition of strategic sensi sensitive goods to protect their own markets uh, which are non-strategic that's that's my optimistic scenario because eventually us and china will have to cooperate for example on green economic transition and and i hope i hope uh, that that will help everybody so i hope that it will not be this what if scenario 20 percent increase on all goods and services because that will definitely be very costly for, for everybody. But it's already the case from where I'm sitting in Paris. Uh, mm -hmm. It's already the case that even between US and Western Europe, 
the issues of uh, cooperation on green transition is not easy and Infl inflation reduction act has created a lot of concerns let's put it this way on this side of the atlantic already between very close allies yes and there are also questions about what it's done to the american economy actually i think in some way um sergey thank you very much for the moment uh right questions here in the audience if you've got one put up your hand i see some hands going up already if you're watching online uh, just go to slido.com uh, and enter the code one two seven nine six six two if you want to send a question or of course you can send your questions in the comments uh, on linkedin uh, and uh, our other outlets as well so uh let's take some questions i saw some hands going up over here we have a microphone hopefully we can get you is that right yes uh okay so we go over there first of all thank you hello my name is Sherbek. i have a question for sergey gurev so by the way i'm your follower in youtube channel so you can send me your late book for your charge <laughs> no free advertising here for sergey, <laughs> thank right? you, thank you. <coughs> so uh, what's going on the landscape of the political change of central asia do we have any chances to rebalance of our trade relationship because for many years uh, for many years ahead maybe our main trade partners is russia and china maybe somehow going on in turkish and kilijudoglu is uh, maybe pro-european uh, leader i don't know who will become next is that any chance for central asia countries to rebalance trade partners moving to europe or other developed countries. Thank okay. you. So okay. Don't yeah. forget about yeah. book. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we have an agreement with uh, my publisher, Princeton University Press. <laughs> I write books, they sell books. So you should ask them to, to, to donate this book to you. But I have, I'm happy to announce that the new paperback edition is out and also Russian translation is uh, done. So it will soon be available both within Russia and outside of Russia. So on, on the trade issue, I would actually want to hear what the other has to say because indeed the transition report has done a lot of work on this issue what i'm going to say is in trade we know that trade is very distance dependent the gravity laws are very important in trade so you trade with your neighbors mostly and we see uh, you, uh people people who work for brd in london have seen how brexit has been difficult because brexit has uh, aggravated the relationship with the neighbor europe uh, for the united kingdom but of course this war has uh, sent shockwaves throughout every part of the world in particular central asia and there will be more trade between central asia and other countries uh, as long as um, this particular political regime is in in in, in the kremlin uh, but overall uh, overall regarding turkey turkey was open to trade with erdogan and whatever political change happens in Turkey or doesn't happen in Turkey, Turkey will be uh, will be open to trade with Central Asian countries. And the same is true in China with China. But Russia, Russia is a difficult, difficult question. But what I said before is important. Um, some of this trade, which grew last year, uh, was uh, helped to Russia to uh, circumvent sanctions. And Europe will work a lot on stopping this trade. So some of this trade diversion, uh, which was Russia-Europe trade, which is now Russia-Central Asia-Europe trade, uh, will probably be limited due to uh, sanction action by European Union and other Western players. But overall, in the long run, of course, Europe is a big market. And of course, as we mentioned, in terms of renewable energy in particular, 
uh, there is a great demand for the whole world, including uh, Europe, to work on this. Beata. So I will abstract from the geopolitical issues and rephrase your question is, how do you geographically uh, diversify exports from this region? How do you diversify the economies? How do you introduce new products? International experience shows that countries that successfully started exporting new products, so-called export discoveries, um, in most cases did so because FDI cam came in. So it was the multinationals that located production in a particular country because multinational had the knowledge of how, how to produce this product somewhere else. They brought it to a new location and they had the distribution network. So in, in other words, um, an answer to your question is um, FDI promotion strategy, being open to FDI, and in particular, trying to attract FDI in sectors that you want to develop. Though, of course, you need to have a realistic chance of developing these sectors, right? It can't be sort of a crazy idea. Um, is probably the best bet. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, there was a question here in the front row. Do we have a microphone we can bring to the front row just here? Thank you very much. <coughs> um, thanks, for the, thanks for the great panel. Um, Georgia, Velazza from Georgia. Just to follow up on Beata's concern on the US debt ceiling. For the interest rates, like six, seven years ago, the very common idea was that the low interest rate environment was the new reality and there was no reason it would go up anymore. Uh, now we are where we are. We've seen both the zero interest rate decade, decade for a, and uh, the high interest rate decade right before that. So what's your view the next uh, decade? Is it gonna be the 5% interest rate decade or this is something very short term? Uh, especially that uh, inflation seems to be inflating away the sovereign debt seems to be one of the only viable uh, Thanks. Um, so my personal view is that the last decades of very uh, low interest rate were more of an anomaly rather than a new normal. Right? Um, take globalization. Over the last few decades, globalization was keeping a lid on inflation as China joined the global economy uh, and the world was able to import very cheaply manufactured goods. Now, globalization is actually a source of inflationary pressures. So one of the big sources um, of low inflationary pressures is gone. Um, also, you know, there was a global savings glut. I think um, as times have become tougher, uh, there will be fewer savings um, to go around. So I subscribe to the view that um, you know, we are not going to see the low interest rates that we saw before. Thank you very much. One question we've had on LinkedIn. Uh, is the EBRD projection for 2024 optimistic regarding food prices and the standard of living of uh, citizens generally? Is there a chance prices going back to where they were before the pandemic and the war in Ukraine? Beata, I'll ask you first and then perhaps maybe you, Heike, this is a big issue of course in your region. Beata. So, you know, we, we are trying to be optimistic. Um, so what we saw was a huge spike in food prices, but since October, food prices, particularly grain prices, have been going down. Um, you know, 
we were concerned that it wouldn't be possible to take grain out of Ukraine. Um, we managed to do so, not perfectly. Um, and you know, you may remember discussions in recent weeks in Eastern Europe about you know very big shipments of grain um, coming from Ukraine by land. That's something that that wasn't uh, possible before. Um, also, in the U.S., there were concerns about drought. They went away. Um, the area on which wheat has been sown is nine percent higher than in the past. So I am less worried about food prices. I am more worried about energy prices in Europe, prices of natural gas, because that's what um, futures markets are, are telling Which us. Which can also feed into food prices, of course, depending of course. on uh, the production. Yeah. Of course. But of course, you know, a lot will depend on how the war plays out. And, and here, you know, we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have a crystal ball, so it's difficult to tell whether our forecasts are okay. optimistic or pessimistic. Heike, get your crystal ball out and tell so us in your region. <laughs> <laughs> no crystal ball for my region either, but what, I, what we have seen indeed is that uh, the pressure of global food price hikes have also led to more diversification strategies. So I think deeply dependent countries, dependent countries like Egypt with 80% of grain imports from Russia and Ukraine and Tunisia have also started to increase local production, have increased efficiency of local production and have started to diversify. Um, and so that is also, of course, giving hope that there is a sort of a, um, a moderation of global food price pass through to these countries. But then again, I think uh, on drought, unfortunately, not so good news. So for example, Morocco has one of the driest uh, periods in over 40 years. And actually, we had praised Morocco of a diversified grain importation strategy and very good local production. But now with this uh, so unprecedented droughts that you see also in, uh, in, in a number of the North African countries, that has also put another sort of pressure on, in particular, water-intensive uh, crop production. So I think um, what I think has also happened, which we haven't spoken of, is also regional cooperation. So for the first time, also some of the Middle Eastern countries are speaking of joint storage opportunities mm -hmm. and also better cooperation in crisis around food and grain in particular. So, I mean, this is, of course, another policy option that is, is, would potentially help to uh, dampen some of these shocks and, um, and sort of these idiosyncratic weather shocks, drought in Morocco, but actually a decent harvest uh, maybe somewhere else in the Middle East to hopefully uh, have a better uh, joint, uh, joint solution to these problems. But I think we don't see the same uh, spikes due to the global effect, but I think there's a lot of local volatility around food in, in these markets. And Sergey Guriev, just very quickly, I mean, generally, do you see our standards of living going back to where they were before we had these twin recent crises? Well, uh, eventually, uh, global economy and especially emerging markets are going to grow. And uh, there are many growth opportunities. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm very proud to have worked uh, at the BRD, have contributed to uh, the development of, of uh, our countries and uh, I, I would like to thank you very much for inviting me today to this debate because I think EPRD is playing a very important role in helping emerging markets to grow and I think uh, economic growth especially if political uh, models are uh, um, correct economic growth will lift all the votes. I'm also very uh, very grateful to Beata continuing the work on the life of transition service which shows uh, which households actually benefit from growth and which suffer from political and economic difficulties, which helps to 
change the policy to make sure that households benefit from economic growth. But overall, in the long run, I'm, of course, uh, optimistic. In the short run, as I mentioned, uh, we cannot neglect uh, the geopolitical disasters which are happening in, in several countries, in our region in particular, uh, the Russian uh, aggression in Ukraine. Sergey, thank you very much. Thank you also to Heike and Beata. Uh, thank you to all of you, by the way, for being with us both here in the room and indeed online. Our latest economic forecasts are available online on our website, ebrd.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to our podcast, of course, where we discuss this and more things. You can download it on iTunes, and uh, we love it when you review and rate the podcasts. Uh, that really helps us to understand as well what you want to hear about. But thank you all very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.